Welcome back to Orthodox.Faith. My name is Ron Bentley. And this is John Harmon. And this week we're going to continue our series on hope. But before we do that, we had some logistical things that we wanted to talk about. We know that some of you listen to the podcast on the website. Others of you listen to it on podcast software. And we just wanted everyone to be aware that there are multiple ways to listen to the podcast. Right. You can always find us and listen to us on our website, Orthodox.Faith. But you can also find us through your podcast app if you want to listen to us on your phone or on another mobile device. We are listed with the major podcast directories, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and lots of others. If you have a podcast app that's your favorite, or if you'd like to start listening on a mobile device, you can just access us through one of those. Just search for orthodox.faith. If you'd like to subscribe to our email announcements, you can do that on the website. And if you want to share one of our episodes, that's very easy to do from the website as well. If you want to post one of our episodes to your social media, we always appreciate that. And that's one of the ways that Orthodox.Faith grows. As they say in the YouTube world, like and subscribe. It helps so much. We did want to let everyone know that we have two more episodes in this series, and then we are going to have a concluding episode for this season, where John and I just plan to sit and chat for a little bit on what we've done. Then starting somewhere around December of 2020, we're planning to begin the second season, and we have some exciting plans there. We'll be telling you more about that as we get closer to it. Let's take up the topic of hope that we have been discussing up to this point. We are looking for an understanding of hope that is biblically informed. How can Christians understand something that we might call ultimate hope? If it's there, what is it and how can we have it? The New Testament clearly understands hope in terms of the fulfillment of something that the Old Testament described. So we've been discussing what that Old Testament story is. It's gathered up around the expectation of a future leader who will bring God's kingdom in its intended fullness and reign over that kingdom. Remember that in the notion of a kingdom as the ancient nation of Israel had it, God is the actual king and the king, Mm -hmm. so to speak, the human king uh, rules as God's representative. Whatever this hope is, it involves a blessing for the entire world, which goes back to that promise to Abraham, but it will come from this family of Hebrews called Israel. And in the Old Testament, hope becomes more and more focused over time on this royal leader that gets the name Messiah. Right. Hope is not just a nice idea. Hope is rooted in a promise of God made in our real world in real history. The Bible establishes a historical trajectory for the fulfillment of that promise. Biblically, the hope for Messiah that's associated with God's ancient promise expects a fulfillment right here on this earth in physical space and time. Based on our faith in God, whom we know is present and active in our world, we have hope that he will not cease to be present and active in our world, but will see things through all the way to their final fulfillment. So in this episode, we're going to continue down this road to hope by picking up the story after the onset of the crisis that wiped out the ancient kingdom of Israel as a nation and eliminated the throne of David, which had been the focal point for all these hopes of Messiah. Ancient Israel had that expectation for the ideal king 
who would come and rule righteously and justly as God's direct representative, as we've already indicated. That expectation had grown more focused over time, but now suddenly there is no throne to sit on, no nation to rule over what happens at this point. Would those focused expectations of Messiah become unfocused? Would they disappear completely? And when it came time to look for the fulfillment of this hope, the best we can say is sometimes it was a very good thing and sometimes it went badly wrong as we lead up to the time where Christians found the fulfillment of this hope in the person of Jesus Christ. Ron, as we remember from biblical history, Israel and its kings drifted further and further away from their calling to represent God in the world. As the gap between the ideal of who Israel was supposed to be as God's own people in the world and the reality of who Israel actually was, as that gap widened, the greater the Messiah king who would come to right the ship, as it were, the greater he needed to be. As the task grew greater, so did the expectations on the one who would come to do the task. So the worse things got, the greater the Messiah needed to be. Right. All of these expectations of Messiah heated up all the more when that gap ultimately included the absence of a nation and a throne, as we said earlier, but both of which were integral to the task that Messiah was to undertake. The defeat of Judah, which was all that remained of the ancient Israelite kingdom at this point, uh, their defeat at the hands of the Babylonians in 586 BC resulted in those conquering Babylonians sending much of the nation into exile away from the promised land, which was a complete disaster for the Israelites. So not only did they lose their throne and their nation, they literally weren't allowed to live in their home any longer, if I understand this correctly. Right. They were literally ejected from the land itself uh, into surrounding nations, including Babylon. Remember from our history that David himself ruled over a united, uh, or at least a politically united Israel, and so did his son Solomon. But when Solomon died, the kingdom split into two parts, a northern kingdom called Israel and a southern kingdom called Judah, which included Jerusalem, the capital, the seat of the Davidic throne. When the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, which lasted about 200 years, actually less than 200 years after the split, they practiced a policy of scattering the peoples and kind of intermixing them, bringing peoples from other parts of the conquered empire in and sending Israelites out in order to mix up the people. So national rebellions would have a very difficult time coalescing and being launched against the conquering Assyrians. The Babylonians picked up this practice and followed it as well. Judah only lasted about another 150 years after the fall of the northern kingdom. Its capital city, Jerusalem, fell in 586, as we said. This policy of exile continued. One of the young men who was carried into exile to the capital of the empire, Babylon itself, was a man named Daniel. And during his time there in Babylon, he had a vision. And in that vision, which has some well-known language to us as Christians, yes, he says this, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. 
He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This is the a picture of the Messiah uh, during the exile that Daniel has, being in God's presence and being sent to actually exercise divine rule, not representative rule, but actual divine rule on earth. It is hard to overestimate the importance of that language. As I understand it, the ancient of days there represents God, and someone is approaching God who's going to take this throne that never ends. Right, and of course, Jesus grasps this title and applies <laughs> exactly. it to himself over right. and over right. in the Gospels. So no question about it that this is Jesus that we are seeing here in this scene of Daniel. Daniel's vision. Eventually, after the period of the exile came to an end, oh, less than 100 years after Jerusalem's fall, it came when the Persians defeated the Babylonians. And the Persians allowed the Jews to return to Jerusalem and begin rebuilding and to have the freedom to worship God as they chose. But most of the exiles chose not to return. But the rest of the Old Testament story tells us about those who did. They did some rebuilding, but the throne upon which the Messiah was to sit still was not reestablished. So the crisis around Messiah persisted. It went on, and the expectations of Messiah only heightened. In the time between the end of the Old Testament story and the opening of the New Testament story in the first century, other Jewish sources from that period give us some glimpses of how their vision of the Messiah was growing and heating up. For example, among the Dead Sea Scrolls, which date to at least a couple hundred years before the birth of Christ, we have an Aramaic text that includes language like this about the Messiah. He will be called Son of God, and they will call him Son of the Most High. His kingdom will be an eternal kingdom, and all his paths in truth and righteousness. The sword will cease in the earth. The cities will pay him homage. He is a great God among the gods. We're starting to hear language here, or continuing to hear language, that sounds a lot like Daniel. (laughs) Right, right. Likewise, just a little bit later than the text we just read, we have another passage from a book called First Enoch that has language like, at that hour, the Son of Man was given a name in the presence of the Lord of the Spirits. Even before the creation of the sun and moon, Before the creation of the stars, he was given a name in the presence of the Lord of the Spirits. We get language remarkably consistent, but now now we get this sense of the eternity of the Mm -hmm. Messiah, the fact that the Messiah has always been around. He is the light of the Gentiles, it goes on to say, and he will become the hope of those who are sick in their hearts. Something we should really notice about that is the fact that there's spiritual healing, yeah. not just not just political and military victory and the reestablishment of David's throne, but there's spiritual healing associated with the Messiah now. People are going to be made whole in more than just a material sense. In the first century AD, we have a text called Second Esdras, or in other places called Fourth Ezra, that pictures the victory of God, even the even the death of Messiah, that there's a sense that the Messiah is mortal, but the Messiah is going to live through the end times. Which seems like a contradiction. It seems like a contradiction, yeah. The Messiah will die, yet will live. Right. That's really setting up something interesting for us as we uh, get into the gospel stories. The same text, though, connects the Messiah with the line of David, 
and with the task of judgment. So you can see all of these things that are wrapped up in the Messiah. Things get more and more intense. This language gets more and more heightened. It's clear that these expectations on Messiah are rising in the sense of who Messiah is as not only a human king, but as a divine figure himself really are part of the mix by the time we get into the exile, the post-exile, and especially through this period that leads up to the New Testament. Right. So we have a variety of texts that are not in our scriptural canon that still let us see that the Jewish thinking about Messiah is developing over time. And John, as I understand it, these texts you have given us go from several centuries before the time of Christ to, I believe that last one was actually shortly after the time of Christ and might even have been informed a little bit by some of the things going on in the Christian community. Right, right. Right. But it's important to observe that in these centuries leading up to Jesus' birth, Messiah fever had heated up also because of some intense persecution by the Greeks and then subsequently the rise of the power of Rome. This history is sometimes even fuzzy for me, so we wanted to give you just a real brief way of piecing this together. Remember that 586 BC, that's the starting point, that's the destruction of Jerusalem. After that, the throne of David and the kingdom of Israel, they simply don't exist. But then again, a little over 500 years before the time of Christ, as John recounted, under the Persians, the Jewish population, at least some of them get the chance to return to Jerusalem and begin rebuilding. And they live under Persian rule for a couple of hundred years until a little over 300 years before the time of Christ. And that's the tremendous conquest by Alexander. He sweeps over this entire area from Persia to Egypt and manages to conquer it all. This is tremendously important. The New Testament is written in Greek precisely because of the surprising success of Alexander. But as many of you know, Alexander died young and his area that he conquered was broken up into various separate empires. Things progressed around Jerusalem without too much turmoil until about the year 200 when the area changed hands. So we're talking about the area directly around Jerusalem. It changed hands from one Greek kingdom to another and this new kingdom was called the Empire of the Seleucids. They really cracked down on the local population, trying to enforce what we'll call Hellenistic norms. They were trying to make good Greeks out of the people who lived here. And as part of that, they would do things like forcing the Jewish population to eat pork, sacrificing pigs on altars that were built on the place where the temple was in Jerusalem. These kinds of things that were just in the face of the Jewish population, and that led to revolt. It was a little bit of a rebellion. At the same time, it was a little bit of a civil war. In certain cases, you had Jewish population who agreed with at least some of the Hellenization, certainly not those extremes, but were willing to go along with it. You had other parts of the population that were dead set against it. In this response to the persecution, these hopes for a Messiah could only grow. 
The Jewish population there centered around Jerusalem did in fact manage to establish a little bit of independence. It lasted for not quite a century when the new kids on the block, the Roman Empire, stepped in to intervene in a dispute over who should rule. And from that point forward, Jerusalem and its surrounding area was subject to Roman power. Notice how With the loss of the kingdom of Israel and the loss of the throne of David, one empire after another is the occasion for the local Jewish population to express its hopes that there would be a Messiah, that there would be someone who would step in to set right everything that had gone wrong. And so these expectations of Messiah's power moved more and more in the direction of the superhuman. We're talking about a long time period here, and we remember that Israel had already been waiting a very long time for the Messiah by the time we get to the first century. What we've been looking at here is an extension of something that we remember has been cooking for centuries. Yeah, do not underestimate the vastness of the time period that we're talking about and the complexity of the forces at work here. Understand the time period we just described is a time period over which the Babylonian Empire fell, the Persian Empire rose, and fell, and Alexander's Hellenistic empires rose and fell, and the Mm -hmm. Romans came on the stage. That's how vast this time period is. And you have different Jewish populations in different places pulling together their interpretations of what we should expect from God. This is an extraordinarily complex situation we're looking at here. But John, I gather it would help to focus this a little bit. Let's let's turn back to Psalms and look at where this hope is getting its start. Yeah, something that we really want to highlight in this conversation, especially as we talk about these vast historical periods of time, is simply the fact that hope involves waiting on God. Hope involves faithfully waiting for God to do what God has promised to do. Even if it doesn't happen in my lifetime. Right. That trust that it will happen. Right. That waiting, that faithful waiting by the community of faith. Waiting is something that we typically don't like to do. Uh, We don't like (laughs) to delay seeing the things that we want to see. But in fact, that's going to become an important part of this conversation. To what degree are we recasting (laughs) what we're waiting on in our waiting because we've been waiting for so long uh, into something else? A good example of this sense of waiting comes in Psalm 89, which we actually mentioned in the last episode. Psalm 89 is a royal psalm that reviews God's covenant with David, uh, specifically as it related to the eternal rule that would come from David's line. After reviewing that promise that God made to David, the psalmist goes into a lament of sorts and and asks God, where is the answer to that promise, God? Look around. (laughs) You can see that we need it. So please bring it. Right. And we can see specifically in that psalm that the psalmist makes an appeal to the promise that God had made, specifically God's promise of a future king. The psalmist knows that that promise has been made and refers to it specifically. Because he's aware of that promise and knows it's coming in the future and knows the God who has made that promise, we can see that there's a concrete hope that's in place 
in this psalm. That hope, though, has enough definition to it that the psalmist knew it had not come yet. It wasn't right. so vague that he thought, oh, I could just fill this in in any way I like. Just, right. I can find a fulfillment out there somewhere because it's so vague. It had some serious definition even by that point, and the psalmist knew we're expecting Messiah, we're hoping and waiting for Messiah, and we know that Messiah hasn't yet come. And so the psalmist calls God on the lack of fulfillment of that promise. (laughs) Where is it, God? Yes, God, where is it? You promised it. Please bring it. We can see then early on and throughout these historical periods that we've been talking about, God's people referenced God's promises routinely. Mm -hmm. They put their hope in God and they waited. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We can even see in the Gospels examples of how they're still trying to sort this out, how they still see themselves as waiting, and they're still trying to sort these things out. While the people of God over these periods of time, while they waited, two important things happened. First, they became more intense and more feverish in their longing for the fulfillment of the promise of Messiah. This increasing intensity drove the focus of their hope upward. It drove their hope to God and to God as the fulfillment of the promise. That's a good thing. That's a good development. Hope hope should drive us to God. Exactly. (laughs) Drive us back to God's promises. That's something we're trying to establish here in this series. However, at the same time, hope became overspecified. Okay. In other words, they refitted their hope to suit what they wanted to see. Okay. They held on to their own versions of what fulfillment should look like. That is, how God was going to bring this about. And this began to cause some problems. They took God's promises and filled in more detail than what God had promised. And they fitted it to their own desires about what they wanted to see Messiah do that far outran, ultimately far outran what God had actually promised that Messiah would do. And we can just see this as an extension of the developments that we've been talking about in this episode. And all of that, that over-specification, that over-defining, over-detailing what they wanted to happen, which colored their expectation— of what they began to hope would happen. This created the possibility that fulfillment might pass them by and possibly leave them still hoping for what was already in hand. So we have hope in something that God's going to accomplish that may or may not happen in my lifetime. There is a firm connection here between longing for God and waiting in hope. If my hope is firmly pegged to something that God will achieve, then and only then is it pegged to something that will not fail me. And yet there's a danger. And that's the danger that John outlined. It's the danger that we overspecify that hope, that we start to pin on to that hope things that were never promised. And that can actually result in two possible problems. One is, as John just suggested, there's the possibility that we miss the hope when it stands in front of us. But there's the flip side. The other way that we might overspecify is to say, ah, here it is when it is not 
We do happen to know from contemporaries of the time of Jesus, I'm thinking about Josephus in particular, that there was a lot of unrest among the Jewish population. There were multiple contenders for the one who would set the nation free. Sometimes they were more or less religious leaders who were impractical in their approach to the military side. Sometimes they were military leaders who simply didn't have the resources to accomplish anything against the might of the Roman Empire. But this too is an overspecification of that hope. It's looking for it in the place where we cannot find it. Yes, this is one of the most important points that we want to make in this episode. The focus of ultimate hope cannot be our own version of what we think or how we expect God to act. It has to be in God himself who makes and keeps his own promises. And those promises, by the way, unrevised by us. Ultimate hope has to escalate from our mere expectation of what we think God will do to our confidence in God himself. This leaves us in a very difficult spot. We have some sense of what God has promised, but given all the potential for confusion, given all the potential for overspecification, given the potential that I will point out this is what God is doing when it's not what God is doing, or the potential that I will completely miss what God is in fact doing, how do I know when God is fulfilling this hope? How do I know this is the work of God, and how do I avoid pinning my hopes for what God will do on perhaps some other individual that I think will make my life better? That's the burning question that confronted the Jewish population in the first century, and that's where we're going to pick up in the ultimate episode of this series, Ultimate Hope Has a Name. For more information about this podcast and our other activities, please see our website at orthodox.faith. That's O-R-T-H-O-D-O-C-S dot F-A-I-T-H. And thank you very much for listening.